And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, returning back to Judges 6, um, last week we had Ryan with us. And so let me just kind of jog your memory about where we are uh, in this study of the life of Gideon. Remember, after Moses led Israel out of Egypt, he passed off leadership to Joshua. And it was Joshua's responsibility to lead Israel into the promised land, right? And there were still Canaanites, lots of different pagan traditions in the promised land. And Joshua was going to lead what we call the conquest or leading Israel to destroy and overthrow the enemies of God and to possess the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob and his descendants. And so from Moses, we stepped into the leadership of Joshua. And after Joshua, there was this period that we call the judges, right? The judges, we said before, were these kind of prophetic warrior leaders. They were not wearing white wigs and long black robes and, and powdering themselves. Um, they were swinging swords, okay? And so this period of judges is the leadership of Israel before the first king um, of Israel was ever appointed. The first king of Israel was Saul, right? Um, so in between Joshua and Saul, we have Israel in the promised land and being led under these men and one woman, Deborah, who we call judges. We learned last uh, last couple weeks that Joshua didn't completely drive out the Canaanites or those people who were in the land before Israel. And so in the seasons of sin, God would allow, he would remove his kind of protection and we would see God through judgment allowing Israel to experience oppression from different peoples in the land. And so in the day of Gideon, the Midianites, who were this um, historic people who lived in, in Canaan, the Midianites were sweeping down over Israel and taking all of their crops. You guys remember this? Taking all of their livestock. They Every time they, they got ready for harvest, the enemies, the Midianites, would sweep down and just steal everything that they had. And so we're in this period of judgment. We're in this period of oppression. And Israel has just begun to cry out for the hand of God to bless and to restore and to remove their oppressor. And every time in the judges, as, as Israel begins to cry out for deliverance, God raises up a man, uh, one time a woman, to um, lead Israel, not just to war with their enemies, but to war with the idolatry and sin in themselves. Okay, this is huge for today, so I need you to pay attention to me. Um, Gideon has been called by God, where we are in the text, God met with Gideon, this kind of theophany. The angel of the Lord says to Gideon, why are you threshing wheat in the winepress? Why are you hiding, you man of courage and valor? Hasn't God called you and given you the courage and the strength to deliver your people? So Gideon has been called to fight the Midianites, right? We agree. There's a commission to deliver Israel from the Midianites. But today we're going to find that before God ever uses a man or woman to fight the enemies, to deliver from oppression, God first calls the man or woman to fight the idolatry and the enemy within our souls. And so, so many times we want to run straight to the battle. We want to run to evangelism in our community. We want to run to, to, to shouting against uh, the kind of our political adversaries and those who've raised themselves up against the word of God. And, and before we can shout about how the world doesn't honor the law of God, we might want to start with how the church doesn't honor the word of God. 
And, and so this is what we're finding in Gideon's life is that it's not just about the fight. It's also about the, the holiness within us. And so today, before God commissions Gideon to fight with um, the Midianites, God calls Gideon to go to his father's house and tear down the idol of his father, the, the idols of his father. Now, in this period, in, in almost all of the world, people were what you would call um, syncretistic. Synchronism is just the idea that you worship kind of a plethora of gods and and you kind of muddy all of their their traditions and their themes together. And so you might worship Baal, you might worship Melech, you might worship this God for harvest and rain and worship this God for military victory. And every culture in the world muddied and jumbled together lots of different worship and tradition. And, and that was what was called religion. The problem is Yahweh is so jealous. Yahweh is wildly jealous. And so when Gideon is called by Yahweh, the first thing God says is, Gideon, you cannot be my man without reckoning with my jealousy. And if you acknowledge that the God you serve and the God I serve is so jealous for all of our affections and our attention, like he will just not have a people who worship Baal and worship Yahweh. He won't have a people who who worship Buddha and Yahweh or who worship whatever. He's like, if you're going to be mine, you're going to be mine. Jealousy. If we worship a radically jealous God, then the logical inference, listen to me for a second. The logical inference of a wildly jealous God is reformation. Meaning, before God says to Gideon, go be victorious in battle, God says to Gideon, by the way, I want all of you, all of your community. You cannot be mine without being all mine. And and that actually, as much as we've talked about jealousy and a negative connotation, which we've kind of tried to delineate before, um, this is covenant intimacy. So every good husband in the room looks at his wife and says, I will love you with everything I've got and you will be only mine. There's no good husband in the room who says, you're my wife, but you can sleep with whoever you'd like. Right? The God of Israel says, when you're mine, you are mine. The logical inference now is that as Gideon is returning to become Yahweh's, there's some stuff that has to be torn down. Now, this is interesting. So just follow with me because I'm excited about it, okay? At least give me like the the generosity of being excited for a moment. God says to Gideon, I am jealous. Therefore, you must tear down the altars of your father. Think just for a minute, jog your brain. Think about the Ten Commandments. Like what are the first of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have No other gods before me. Verse 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, 
the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In order to be in covenant relationship with Yahweh, Gideon is going to have to return to acknowledge theologically that God wants all of him and all of his people. Therefore, he's got to start tearing some stuff down. And it's really interesting because God doesn't say to Gideon, all right, Gideon, we're going to deal with the Midianites who are oppressing the people. But Gideon, your father has, so this is where we get to the story. So much of the story today that we're going to read is about Joash. Joash is the father of Gideon. And Joash has a, an altar to Baal and, a, and an altar to Asherah at his house. And God doesn't say to Gideon, hey, dude, your dad's got an altar to Baal. Make sure you don't worship at it. That's what we would think. Like, oh, your family worships Asherah. Make sure you don't. God says, go tear it down. Go to your father's house and tear it down. Now, God's jealousy for the people of Israel, it's not just touching Gideon in a way and saying, you're going to have to be courageous and a military leader. I'm going to touch you and make you victorious. Now God is touching Gideon's family heritage. Because the altar of Baal and the altar of Asherah, in some sense, this is his father's work. His father certainly spent wealth, money, inheritance money to build these altars. This is his father's passion. Can't I just disagree with him? And God says to Gideon, no, I'm not just going to touch you and make you a military champion. I'm going to touch you. And when I touch you, it's going to require that you begin to tear things down even things as intimate as your family legacy, your family heritage, your family culture. Follow me for a second. Luke chapter 9, verse 59, Jesus says to a man, follow me. And he said, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Now, what is, what's happening there in that famous text? There's a man Jesus calls and says, follow me, be my disciple. And the man says, my father's old. He's getting ready to, to pass on. Let me just go spend the last years with my father and prepare his, his finances and receive his, his inheritance. Let me go deal with my family stuff. And then whenever all that's done, I'll come and follow you. And Jesus says, your father and your father's family are all spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead deal with death. You have to want to follow me more than you want to participate in the kind of celebration of your biological father's life. That's hard. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. A requirement for discipleship is that you so respond to the jealousy of God that you will follow him with all of your passion and all of your desire, even well over your commitment to family relations. Now, Jesus is obviously not promoting that you actively practice evil intent towards your father and mother. He's just saying that you've got to want me so much more than you want your family culture or legacy. Now, from here, just listen to me, because I haven't talked in two weeks, so it's my turn. Um, from here, we've established Gideon's got to deal with Joash's altars. God's asking Gideon, you don't just get to fight the Midianites. You've got to fight what's going on in your own family tree. 
when we start to stumble into the purely sociological and psychological aspects of what it means to be raised by a father, you come to realize really quick that there is no one as important to your shaping as a person as your biological father. Even if he abandoned you, it shaped you. Your values, your ideas, what you perceive as success and failure, like it's just true that your biological father so marked you. What if he marked you in ways that dishonor God? What if your biological father has shaped you in a way that is not reflecting the image of Christ? Now you come to a crux in the road. Will you serve God or will you live obedient to your family culture? Now here's a silly one for you. I'm just throw it out here. Um, when um, Ryan, Pastor Ryan, who spoke last week, was with us, Ryan, I don't know if you could tell by his southern accent and his cowboy boots, but Ryan likes country music, okay? Um, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I dabble, you know what I mean? I could, I could pick a six string if you wanted to see. Um, and so we were talking about, uh, particularly Ryan was likes the 60s and 70s, so you get into like uh, the outlaws, Willie and Waylon and Chris Christopherson, that group of musicians. So we were talking about that. And um, so I was just thinking about um, this this Hank Williams Jr. song that everyone, like, cherished in the South, um, where he says, you know the song. If you don't, you shouldn't want to learn it. Um, the lyric of the song, the hook is, if I get stoned and sing all night long, it's a family tradition. And, like, the idea is that in the song, Hank Williams Jr. is being challenged like, why are you living a life of drunkenness? Why are you living a life that exploits drugs and alcohol? And Hank Williams responds, getting drunk and playing music and sleeping with women, Junior says, is a family tradition. Therefore, I will fulfill it. Now, that that's a really stupid take. But Hank Williams Sr., because you wanted to know this, um, he was 29 years old when he died of a heart attack. Now, the heart attack that he died of was um, so Hank Williams Sr. was 29 years old when he died. Hank Williams Jr. was three. Okay, you got a three-year-old when his dad dies, singing well later in his life that he's still practicing drunkenness and um, and open sexuality because of his father's influence. His father was was it was only 29. He dies because he's he's a heavy alcoholic. The Grand Old Opry is like you're the best musician of the day, hands down. No one's denying that, but you constantly miss shows because you're high and drunk, and so. Um, Hank Williams Sr., in his alcoholism, his family brought him to a doctor who got his degree without doing actual, you know, doctor stuff, a.k.a. studying, um, a doctor who tried to help people get off of alcoholism with morphine. Um, and so now he's got Hank Williams Sr. hyped up. He's, again, 28, 29, hyped up on morphine with another other cocktails of pills, and Hank Williams Sr. never quit drinking. So now he's just got this great cocktail of alcohol, morphine, and other pills. And actually, his heart stops on the way to a show um, from, the, from the drugs and alcohol. So Hank Williams Jr., as a, as a young man growing, says, you know what? Like, I'm going to get trashed, play music, and sleep around because it's, it's family legacy. Now, that's an extreme example. But by God, if that doesn't run through young men in the South, like what it means to be a man is to get trashed, and, and, and I know that's a simple, like, kind of offhand example, but every one of us, 
Like you were raised in a cultural context. And maybe your father was a great businessman. And maybe your father was, was this kind of like um, very uh, savvy, moving money around, using people, pushing to the top. And you were taught that people are pawns. And that your family has more value than the, than the family who works a blue-collar job. And so you're above them. The way that you treat them really doesn't matter. And you, you push people around. And when you come to Christ Jesus and Jesus says, the blue-collar worker is your brother and you have to honor him. You need to pay him a fair wage. You need to treat him with respect. When you come into this new kingdom, you have to deny everything your father taught you. You say, I love my father. I don't care. You say, like, in my house, we just talked about whatever we wanted to talk about. We talked about our neighbors. We, we gossiped at the dinner table. It's just who we are. I don't care. It is not who Jesus is. You can say, when we're tired and we, we just kind of pick at each other and we like to kind of ruffle each other. Who cares? At what point do you say, Everything my father and mother led me into that dishonors Jesus, I am ready to cut at the root. Now, y'all don't have any idea what it's like to not preach for two weeks and then come in here to this sleepy crowd. Um, I'm about to show my tattoos. You don't, you don't start paying attention. Oh, good God. Let me, let me read you the text and, um, and we'll, we'll start to try to unravel some of this. But again, the idea at hand is, is one, God is wildly jealous. Therefore, he's not going to allow Gideon just to fight without dealing with the deepest, most intimate, internal idolatry. Verse 25 of chapter 6. You guys ready? That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Take the second bull, offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his men and did as the Lord told him. Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asher beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he has broken down his altar. First. Remember that what we've transitioned into is what the scripture calls seven years of turmoil. There's been a seven-year period that Israel has been oppressed. So we've got seven years of chaos. And in this season, their crops have been stolen. Their livestock have been stolen. Gideon's hiding in a wine press trying to prepare a meal because the enemy just keeps sweeping in and devouring the land like locusts. 
But what we find from the text today is in this season where everyone's poor and everyone's hungry and tired, Joash has cattle. Joash has 10 servants. At least 10. Joash is a man of wealth who through his own craftiness has learned to prosper in a season of total turmoil and chaos. What do we learn about Joash from the text right away? He's clearly some kind of diplomatic, even even when the crowd gathers together and says, who has torn down the the altar of Baal? Joash steps right into this kind of um, governmental, diplomatic, he's working the crowd. He's clearly a political leader in Israel in this hour. And he has the altar of Baal and Asherah at his house. He paid for it. He funded it. And so what we find as we build kind of the context and the the context clues we have in the scripture is that Joash was a successful diplomatic Israelite who for some reason has an altar to Baal and an altar to Asherah who Baal and Asherah are like, um, in this season, uh, not to get too technical, but Baal was worshiped in different ways. There were different Baals. We don't need to get into all of that, but in this season, Baal was worshiped for harvest, for fertility. And so you got a, you got a Jewish man who's leading the city, who's got money and cattle when no one else does. And he's stepping into problems and solving issues. This is what you would call a political leader, a diplomat. He's a strong man. He clearly is kind of a peacekeeper. I think he's got an altar to Baal. Maybe not even because he loves to worship Baal, but because the other people groups in the land worship Baal. And if we have an altar to Baal, then we can kind of find peace with them. We honor their culture. Maybe they'll honor our culture. He's clearly this kind of diplomatic, wealthy, crafty man. Joash was a political compromiser. Now, Gideon is hiding in a wine press trying to thresh his wheat. I get the the idea that Gideon's not quite like Joash. That Gideon's not as sharp. That Gideon doesn't have the leadership. He's he's not as he's not his father's son perfectly. And so Gideon hiding in the wine press, he has a theophany, and, and and the angel of the Lord appears to him and speaks to him directly. And the angel of the Lord tells him that he is going to lead Israel out of their oppression. Now, when we picked up our text today, it said that in the night the Lord spoke to Gideon. Now, the theophany that he experienced first was an appearance of an angel of the Lord that he could touch who spoke to him. Now it seems that God's speaking to Gideon in either a dream or a vision. But either way, conversation has opened up with Yahweh. And as Gideon gets ready to lay his head down to sleep, some sense, God begins to speak to him. And God says, I I don't want you to worry about the Midianites yet. I want you to worry about what's happening in your family. I want you to worry about your household. Come on. You want to, you want to talk about what's happening in our, in America and the way in which we've turned from God. Let's talk about what happens at your house. Like reformation starts with the house of the Lord. And that's the biblical concept of judgment starting at the house of God is that God wants to deal with us first. I say this all the time. You cannot pray, God, let your kingdom come while you live in such a way that brings hell. It just doesn't work. 
And so the first thing God says to Gideon through a dream or a vision is let's deal with what's going on in your house. The scripture says that Gideon got up, he got to the ten servants, he got the cattle of his father, and in the middle of the night, he tears the altar down. Now, the first inclination of reading this is like, Gideon's really obedient. God says, tear down the altar at night, and Gideon just gets up and does it. Man, wouldn't you like to have that kind of obedience? But then the author of Judges tells us that it wasn't just because Gideon was so obedient that he jumped up and tore it down, but he was a little nervous about what was going to happen when everyone realized that he had destroyed the altar of Baal and Asherah. As the crowds wake up in the morning, they realize that their altar has been torn to the ground. And they begin to ask, who did this? Let's kill him. And we find in the text a fascinating truth. I want you to listen to me just for a second. Backbone begots backbone. So Joash, who has built an altar to Baal, all of a sudden rises up with courage and says, oh yeah, if Baal's a god, let him cut Gideon down. And it's like, Joash, where'd you get a backbone from, dude? You got us in this mess. And this is a this is a, also a sociological truth. Uh, Billy Graham used to always say this. Like, one person with a backbone will cause a hundred people to stop shaking and stand up tight. And God is often looking for one person in a family line to stand up and turn the tide. And you would be shocked how whole families come to follow Jesus when one person stands up and says, enough is enough. So Joash stands up and says to the crowd, oh yeah, if Gideon tore down the altar of Baal, let Baal contend with him. You kill Gideon, I'll kill you. We'll see what kind of God Baal is. And they changed Gideon's name. It's fascinating. They changed Gideon's name to mean the one that Baal fights with. And, and this is actually an interesting truth. Like when you get to the place in your spiritual walk where the enemies of God become your enemies and you transition into this place where, you know, in, in, in Acts 19, 15, these men are trying to drive out a demon, these sons of Sceva, and the demon responds to these men. Uh, he says, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, and I don't know who you are. And th- there's this place in spiritual maturity where the enemies of God become the enemies of his people, but only as you deal with the enemy in your soul. John 15, 18 to 19, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me. Now, from here, we get this narrative, again, of Gideon being willing to tear down what his father had built, being willing to tear down what cost him money, being willing to sacrifice a bull in a time of famine. I don't know about you, but I'd be going like, maybe we should eat that. Um, hamburger helper sounds nice. I don't know. Um, but But Gideon... He's becoming God's man as he is willing to wrestle down the the deepest idolatry in his heart, the most intimate places of his soul. Again, to, to, to be willing to call out your dad's garbage, to point at Joash and say, I love you, but I'm not following you in your paths of sin. And I love you, and I know that this is your money, and I know that you built this life, and you're trying to 
honor their culture, so they'll honor our culture. I love you, and I honor you as my father, but I will not participate in your idolatry. And I know it's our family tradition to be very diplomatic and nice, but our family tradition will bow its knee to my devotion to Yahweh. I know that it's real normal to kind of rub shoulders with the Canaanites, rub shoulders with the Midianites, and say, look, we worship Baal too. But as for me, I will love Yahweh and love Yahweh alone. And so you can take a hike with all your idolatry. Some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about right now. I, I, shoot, I'm on camera. Um, man, I just be real. I'm just be real honest for a second. My, you guys know this story. My dad walked in my developmental years. Like I was like maybe three the last time I really laid eyes on him. And even in my development, like, gosh, this is embarrassing to say out loud. Um, I, I still knew what kind of man he was. And my dad could fish and hunt like anybody. And my, my dad sat outside and drank and smoked all day long. And there was still this idea of what a southern man was that my dad projected. And as I grew up, I'm going like, look, I like to fish as much as anybody. Um, I, I, I like music. And I don't particularly love my psychological state. I don't like to get drunk. Um, maybe what it means to be a man is to participate in this culture of just kind of caring about being outdoors and drinking and smoking what you want to drink and smoke, sleeping with who you want to sleep with. And, and I have to look at this kind of persona that he built and stand up, and this is embarrassing to say out loud, but to stand up and look at my father's persona and legacy and life and go, not for me. And, and man, one of the, one of the cool things is you guys know my dad passed maybe two years ago now of, of cancer from the way he treated his body, essentially. One of the cool things was in his year after the cancer started and they're trying to get him to quit smoking, he's, he's walking up to his mom's house who listens to me preach on Sunday mornings. And um, the last years of his life, he would walk up to his mom's house. I, I don't think he knew my birthday. I don't think he could tell you, he certainly couldn't tell you a thing about my my life or my history. I mean, we didn't know each other. We, we had talked a few times. We hung out a few times, texted every now and then. I met him when I was like 18 or 19. He didn't know me, but he'd walk up and sit and listen to me preach. And then he'd walk back down to his little place where he lived. And every Sunday, he'd walk up and sit and listen to me preach. And as I preach, I am declaring, my children are going to see a man who loves Jesus, period. And as I preach, I'm declaring holiness and devotion. And I will spit on all of your southern man idolatry to love Jesus well. I don't care. And, and, and some of us have not wrestled down that place in our soul. It's like, man, my family's filled with lawyers and doctors, and I've got to be successful, and I've got to be able to, to hobnob, and I've got to fit into that legacy. At what point do you get a backbone and some heels, and you stand up and say, for me and my house, we love Jesus. You could take all of your worshiping money and worshiping fame and, and hobnobbing somewhere else. We're going to serve people and love Jesus. I'm devoted to Christ Jesus, period. Let me say a few more things. Now, you read this text, like every American that's read this text for the last hundred years. And we read this text and we go, hey, by the way, Caleb, I've never worshipped a clay statue. Yeah, we worship God. We've never built a pole and carved out a woman and bowed down to her. We don't practice idolatry, Caleb. 
you were raised in a society that, that whether you or not you want to acknowledge it, is Darwinistic. And in Darwinism, you were taught that there's no such thing as the spiritual realm. And in Darwinism, you were taught that everything is about you being satisfied and fulfilled and finding happiness in, in this kind of humanistic, naturalistic worldview that you and I were raised in. You were told you are the most important thing in all the universe. You say, I don't worship statues. No, you worship yourself. Like You were taught, and I, I was taught, that we should follow our hearts and find anything that fulfills or makes us happy. Fulfill all of your sexual, sensual desires, because that's all there is to life. Now, yeah, you don't worship Baal. You don't follow the theologians of Baal. You follow Darwin. And so when you think about your money, and I know I'm just on this kick, but let's just be on it. The church for all of history taught frugality. Frugality meaning it was shameful to spend all of your resources on your own well-being. And we can't get Christians to tithe. We can't get Christians to care for the poor. And, and so we, we, we've been, why, why is it that you think your money is about you having all the things that you've ever desired? I don't know, because you were raised in Darwinism. Why is it that you think, I think, that sexuality is not really that big of a deal, and we should just explore all of our sexuality and find fulfillment in these natural desires? Why do we live that way in our culture? Because in Darwinism, there's nothing else. So you say, I don't worship idols. Oh, yes, you do. And, and what I'm trying to hone down on is, if we were to funnel all of these ideas down and sit down at the dinner table. This, this is my, my challenge to you, okay? If we were to sit down at the dinner table and look at our family and say, you know, we're getting ready to go, and I don't know if you know this or not, but Thanksgiving's like next week. Um, and I'll be a solid eight pounds heavier, okay, the next time you see it. Um, some of you guys are going to have family members that come for way too long, right? You, your, your family doesn't know how to come for two days. Like they come for a week and a half. Um, if, I know this is kind of a silly practical application here. If, if Jesus were to come for a week and a half, what would change in your house? Oh, I'm telling you, you wouldn't watch what you're watching on TV. <laughs> if Jesus were to come, half of us would go, you know what we should do on Thanksgiving? We should bring food to the food pantries. You had cared about the poor one time on Thanksgiving. And all of a sudden, if Jesus were around, we'd be going, oh, um, I'm, I'm challenging you. Lobby that before your family. What would we change if Jesus were to come? And whatever you arise with, if it is, we probably would think about the poor a little more. Maybe you have a financial idol in your life. Do you, are you guys following what I'm saying? If what rises to the surface is, I don't know, we probably wouldn't listen to that perverse music that we're listening to. Like, to, to honor the legacy of Gideon, would be to t- would turn it off. You say, oh, but my daddy liked this kind of music. I don't care what your daddy liked. Does, does Jesus, is Jesus honored by, the, by what's happening in your home? And, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to shoot straight with you because I'm, I'm sweating now. Now I'm mad. Um, it's hot in here. Um, and they see what you did. You got me hungry and hot. And now this is where we're going. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And about a year from now, you're all going to be buck wild crazy on politics again. You're going to be fighting and calling and talking about why we should be doing this and why we should be doing that. I'm saying that 
man, don't you get all riled up about politics next year and be unwilling to get riled up about what happens in your heart and in your home. You can't care about national returning to our, to our, our, our legacy of Christian heritage without, without caring about it in your heart and in your home. That's idolatry. That's wanting to bicker and fight. You want to be, you want to be Gideon-like? Let's start here now, man. Let's start today. What is it in your life that honors your heritage and your family legacy and your culture and, and dishonors your Jesus? And are you willing to stand up and say, look, I don't really care what you think about life. I got a backbone and a God who's jealous for me. You could take all your gossip and all your bickering and all your self-serving with your money and, and only being concerned with your, your own entertainment. You could take that somewhere else. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing your drunkenness. And, and when you, when you t- church history used to teach this, like there is a sense in which there are external natural sins that we have to deal with. Like um, every Christian at some point has to wrestle down profanity and like, especially using profanity in a way that curses people. Like you have to, you have to quit that. And sometimes I was telling the staff, oh, this is bad. I'm going to say it out loud, but forgive me, okay? This is sin. I'm confessing right now. I'm not, I'm not making light of this. When Haley and I first got married, um, I used to say this to her all the time. It was a joke, but it was kind of serious, but kind of a joke. Like we didn't use profanity. We, didn't, we, we, just, we just don't. And so sometimes when I got mad at Haley, I would say, I'm flicking you off in my mind right now. And, and what, what I meant by that is, um, I was joking, but what I was saying was, I'm not cussing you out, and I'm not throwing up a finger, I'm not throwing a fit, but in here, I'm mad. And in here, there's, there's some things in me that are frustrated with you, and I might not be flicking you off with my finger, but in here. <laughs> and that, that's a silly, a silly example, and I would say it jokingly, hopefully, um, but in your, in your Christ-like process, you have to transition from, we don't just gossip around the dinner table. And maybe, maybe you've gotten there, like we stopped gossiping. Oh, but at some point, you, you stop um, carrying in your heart judgment and anger and, and this kind of religiosity towards other people. Some of us have learned to kind of, we've tamed our, our tongue to a sense, but we haven't dealt with the root in our heart. And church history would talk about that progression of like, okay, it, your discipleship doesn't stop when you when you when you stop giving to drunkenness, like then there's like a, why do I feel the need to get drunk? What is it in me that wants to escape? And are you really on a journey of wanting all of your life to look like Jesus, to honor Jesus? Or are you on a journey of sliding through honoring your cultural heritage and legacy and hoping to to make it out with a nice life? Gideon would say, man, just let's just start tearing stuff down. Why don't you stand to your feet? We'll get ready to close.